Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Lisa Ireland. Now you're an author, of course, because I've got your book here, but all authors have to start off with an idea. And you wrote about your idea that was slippery yet tenacious. What was the big idea for your book? Well, Jan, I think um, what led me to say that about it being slippery yet tenacious was I really wanted to explore the idea of friendship, uh, female friendship particularly. And I am someone who really values female friendship. I've got strong friends. And I thought it would be something that would be easy to write about because, like, we've all got friends, haven't we? And so we, we, well, most of us, so let's hope we have friends. Um, it's a really familiar topic and it's a topic that um, people, that seems to resonate with people. People, uh, as soon as I started to say I'm writing a book about friendship, about lifelong friendship, people wanted to tell me their stories. So I kind of thought it would be an easy book to write. Um, so, well, you know, if, if people have got lots of friends, what could cause a friendship to go wrong? Wow, <laughs> this is the question. And that was the thing that actually was the idea behind the book. What prompted the book was I had moved house. Um, I'd moved from metropolitan Melbourne to to the country, essentially to the coast, Um from the town that I grew up in, I hadn't lived there my whole life, but I had moved back there. My parents were ill and I'd moved back to the, the town that I grew up in. And then I moved away from that town after my parents died. And I had a lifelong friend who that our friendship dissolved. And now, this is a term you bring into the, in, in, uh, in, that I've never heard of. Ghosting. Yeah, well, I hadn't heard of it either. I'd actually heard of it in romantic relationships. So um, I think these days that people who date on Tinder and other apps would know about ghosting. Ghosting is basically when someone just cuts you out of their life and gives you no explanation, doesn't respond to your texts or your, your phone calls or whatever. So I'd heard of it in romantic relationships, but I read an article online about um, ghosting in friendships. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this has actually happened to me and there's a name for it. I'm not, you know, and I'm, I'm not, you know, because I was kind of actually when a, a lifelong friendship breaks down, it's, it's, it's quite um, – I, I was grieving for that relationship and I, it's quite – I felt like ashamed. I sort, mm-hmm. of, sort of felt shamed What's that this had happened. Yeah. Yes. And so then when I heard this term and I started to talk to people about it, I discovered that it's quite common, and which made me feel better. It's always better to share your grief, you know, misery shared. So, um, yeah, and so that was the idea behind it, working out if we met our childhood friends now, because we don't really question our relationships, in, particularly if we're in, like, really long-term friendships, we accept, you know, accept people for who they are, who they were, and we look at – we have that shared history that binds us together. But – we might, you know, if we met that person now as an adult, would we actually form a friendship with them? And sometimes the answer might be yes and other times maybe not. Well, Lisa Ireland is the author I'm speaking with today and her book is called 
The Art of Friendship. So who are the main friends in this book? The main friends are Libby um, who and Kit, so Libby and Kit. And it's the book is set, the main part of the story is set in the year that Libby and Kit turned 40. But they've been friends since they were 11 years old. I like the way you've done this. You've divided the book up into four seasons. So we start with summer. And b- before each season, we get a little bit of a historical flip back. So the, yeah. the book actually starts. 1989 in summer and of course summer is when if somebody changes schools you don't know anyone and you know you've got to start at a new school and this is how Libby and Yeah, Libby's, Libby's moved she's moved with her family from the country and we find out um, pretty quickly that uh, Libby's family have, have been farmers and something's gone wrong mm. and they've had they've lost their farm and they've had to move um, to outer suburban Melbourne and Libby's mum is not happy about this and she's not really, she's frightened of the city, doesn't want Libby making friends and Kit who is the uh, next door neighbour well, the uh, across the road neighbour actually bowls up to Libby's open bedroom window on the very first day and introduces herself and that's where the friendship is born. So now in that same summer period, same summer chapter we jump 29 years into the future and we have another move and another school. So who's this involving? Well, Libby's husband, Cam, who is a corporate lawyer, um, gets a job in Melbourne. And Libby has moved from Melbourne to Sydney to um, for Cameron's work. And Cam gets this fantastic job offer um, back in Melbourne. And Libby thinks all her dreams have come true, that she's going to get back to move back to her hometown and to be close to her very best friend, Kit. Because even though they have been apart geographically, they've remained really close friends first through through um, traditional type of communication like letters and then as technology's picked up, they're um, emailing, they're Skyping, like we all do, keeping up with each other on Facebook. So, and who's starting school, new school? Oh, well, Harry, who is uh, Libby's child, he's going off to a new private school in Melbourne, um, and which is really something that's quite important to Libby because she's very um, conscious of social status and she's one of the things that she's excited about is that Harry is going to get to go to this school that in their previous life in Sydney she would never have been able to afford for him. So she's excited. And, of course, Harry is Kit's godson. Yes. So there's this connection too. And Kit has always made sure that Harry understands AFL and barracks for the doggies. (laughs) Yes, what's that about? (laughs) Surely she should have made him barrack for Geelong. Good team. In the past they were divided by distance, but now they're both back in Melbourne. And when you think about the, the suburban divide, Kit is living in Yarraville. Yes. Very trendy, hip Yarraville. And Libby has moved to Arcadia Gardens near Altona. Now, Kit calls it a plastic enclave. And she calls Libby's new friends the desperate housewives. (laughs) She does. (laughs) When I first started the novel, I pitched this novel to my publisher as... um, uh, Alice is a cross between Alison Pearson's I Don't Know How She Does It and The Stepford Wives because I really uh, I wanted to explore that idea um, I mean obviously the, that suburb does not exist I made it a gated suburb and I did that because I wanted these women to be in very close proximity to each other and be very involved in each other's lives and so they're the wives of Cameron's colleagues which mm. is an interesting sort of proposition for Libby 
be herself anyway because she's been someone who has come from a, a different sort of situation where, you know, the this is sort of like a whole wives club where these people don't work and their job is to be Wives, wives, which is Beautiful quite, wives. yeah, yes, and which is quite unusual. I did a lot of watching of um, the what, what is it called? Um, the Real Housewives of oh, Melbourne right. and Sydney. I'd never seen that before. I actually got strangely addicted. Well, there's Georgina now. She's the boss's wife, and she's an interior decorator, and she's fitted out the entire house for Libby to move into. So Libby doesn't have to do a thing, which yes. is rather scary, isn't it? It is scary, and it's particularly scary for Libby because her previous job in Sydney. Has to, she's um, teaches at a community centre in the granny arts, yeah, so the granny arts. so yeah, in crochet and and, and <laughs> knitting. And she loves to put a warm sort of you know feel yeah. to her home, and she's got this sterile designer house, so it's a bit and weird. Felicity, the uh, event manager, who uh, has stacked her fridge with um, all the goodies that, that Libby would possibly need, and then there's Ali, the meter and greeter. And Ali talks about that there can be competition in friendships. But Libby feels drawn to Ali because she's flattered by Ali singling her out as special by the cool girl in the group. Yeah, I think you, we go if we go back to Libby's past in and we do in in one of those past chapters. Libby's always been someone who it's been very important to fit in in life and she's part of that has come from her um her parent like her her mother is a very distant mother and a disapproving mother and so she's seeking love elsewhere so she's sought love through friendship um and trying to fit into social groups and so her whole life whether from childhood that's that's her aim is to be liked by everyone and so when Ali likes her Mm. that's that's very um yeah she really loves that and she knows that uh, Kit you know her very best friend she Kit didn't care about what people thought Libby was often frustrated with Kit because she was too confident in her own opinion never changing her mind black or white right or wrong Maybe her opinions came through as disapproval. Mm. I wonder, you know, with friendship groupings, whether this happens. Yeah, I think so. I think Libby's not a self-confident person and I think confidence can be threatening in other people if you're not a confident person yourself and it can come across as criticism or disapproval. And as I just said, for Libby, approval is everything. That's her goal in life. Um, And then, this is another bit from Lisa Ireland's book, The Art of Friendship. And Ali, she was so easy to be around. She was light and funny and she listened to everything Libby had to say with interest. It suddenly occurred to Libby that Ali was the first proper friend she'd made as an adult. And I sort of thought, oh, you know, you look at your own friendships and think, yeah, I, I think the thing is for Libby is like a lot of um, you know, middle-aged women, a lot of her friendships have come through her child and they're like friendships of convenience, even though she might like the other women. in. So when she was in Sydney, there's a friendship group there, but they were formed through Harry. It's interesting for her to confront the fact that at almost 40 years old, this is the first time she's made an actual friend, friend for someone who <laughs> likes her for her, not for anything else. Now, Kid, Kit had always thought that Libby had needed more emotional support. She, uh, Kit wasn't very good at talking about her own feelings. And this is another quote. She had never been good at accepting help of any kind. It made her feel weak and needy, qualities she didn't associate with herself. 
Kit was the caregiver, caregiver, a role she'd always had and one she was comfortable with. And at almost 40 years old, she wasn't about to give that up. <laughs> oh, there's this 40, turning 40. It's a big thing for them. It is, yeah. But um, emotional, Libby needing emotional support. She also has a very, well, she's got the husband, Cameron, and... Um, but you sort of think, would it, are there things that you would tell your friend that you'd never tell your husband? Yeah, mm. yeah. Oh, I th- absolutely think so. I think that's, um, uh, you know, something that female friendship. There's a bond between fe- female friends that, you know, obviously you would tell your husband things also that you wouldn't tell your friends. But I think that bond in female friendship is irreplaceable. And so, if that if you have a close friend and then that friendship dissolves or is threatened, it can be very confronting. Kit and Cameron, uh, you know, they they're sort of are friends. But what happens when Kit brings in a new man? Uh, when, <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness gracious me. Whoa, would, would you ever ask your friend to leave a party? just because you didn't like the partner. (laughs) Look, there was so much in this book that was just fantastic. And one last quote from Lisa Arlen's book, The Art of Friendship. Perhaps the art of friendship lay in accepting that not every secret had to be shared. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting that quote. My editor was was questioning whether I should. She said, "Oh, is that a bit of a a negative thing to leave the readers with?" But I don't think it is. I think that I, I do think that we can keep some secrets from oh, our absolutely. friends. Absolutely. Look, great read. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Made me actually question friendship. So what about your read, Dave? Well, we have friendships in my book, and the loss of friendship is there as well. It's a form of can be a form of trauma and trauma changes lives and can alter behavior especially in the young in her novel we see the stars kate van hoof speaks through the voice and mind of simon and a troubled 11 year old so kate welcome to 3cr thank you very much for having me now i want to explore the character of simon especially Mm. the way he communicates and the nature of his imagination he generally doesn't speak, mm. and he's accompanied by Superman. <laughs> What's going on? Yeah, Superman is his best friend. Um, I think Simon is um, a child who has perhaps some neurodiversity um, in his background. He's not um, been diagnosed with anything, um, but he does have some different ways of relating to the world and he is also deeply traumatised and so I think you get this sort of combination effect where you have this very young child dealing with some very adult concepts but really doesn't have language to actually describe them or to make sense of them. But he's in fact the narrator of the book. (laughs) Yes, yes. And he does things like list. I lay on the couch Mm. with Davy's cushion under my head The sounds went like this. One, Grandma was in the kitchen chopping up an onion and she kept sniffing because it uh, was making her eyes water. 1.1, she had to keep stopping to drop her cigarette ash in the sink. 1.2, it sounded like she was crying, but it was hard to tell if she really was or not just by listening. Two, Dad got home and dropped Mm -hmm. his workbook. Um, What enabled you to get into that mindset of an (laughs) 11-year-old? I'm not, look, to be honest, I'm not 100% sure. Um, Simon actually appeared to me in a writing exercise when I was at uni um, and he appeared 
fully formed. Um, he had this voice that just appeared in my mind um, and he started to very gradually explain things to me about the way he sees the world. Um, but he was almost quite cagey, so we spent a couple of years together sort of getting to know each other. Um, and he would tell me a little bit about school and he would tell me a little bit about Cassie and about his brother Davy. but he wouldn't really go much further than that. Um and so over the years, I sort of got used to the way he thought um, and he communicated to me the way the way he does in the book. You know, he sort of, rather than saying I'm feeling anxious or nervous because he doesn't have that language, he would describe his whole body being taken over with bees. You know. Taken over with bees, yeah. taken over with lightning is, yes. is the way yes. you describe it. I'm just wondering what... Um, experience do you mm. have with uh, children of this age? Yeah, well, I've worked with um, with young people in, in tertiary education and secondary school um, for a number of years. So I haven't worked necessarily with that age group, but I've worked with almost the result of trauma in that age group. Um, so with people who are able to communicate about what's happened to them in childhood and people who aren't, um, and the way that they've chosen to express themselves as adults has a very childlike quality to it. Um, so I suppose I've used some of my work experience in getting to think about the way that people communicate trauma um, without or being unable to actually say, this is what happened. Well, we, we tend to label things. One of the first yes. things that came to mind was someone with Asperger's yes. because they would list. Yes. But Simon is not an Aspie, as we would say. <laughs> no, he's sort of – I really hesitate to name anything in yeah. a sense. I don't want to pathologise him, and I don't feel like it necessarily matters exactly what it is. Um, I think what's more important is to think about what communicates – what he's communicating when he talks about the way he feels. Um and it's set in the 70s, so the, the knowledge of these kind of neurodiverse conditions is such that he wouldn't really be – nothing would have really been picked up really. anyway. He's just sort of relegated to being a bit of a weirdo and he is sort of left to try and develop strategies himself. Well, in terms of being a weirdo yeah. – uh, I love him, just want to say. <laughs> I don't but, think but he's a weirdo. But children of that age mm. would label each other weirdos. Yes. Parents have a whole other challenge. Mm. But this leads to a friendship he develops with Cassie. Yes. Now, begin. we'll begin by looking at uh, the fact that Cassie is damaged as well. Yes. Uh, yep. So there's trauma in Cassie's life, yeah. but that's expressed differently. Well, it's different for Cassie because her her um, difference is physical. She has a, a melted hand. Um and, and the kids really go to town on that. And um, we are left to imagine how that occurred. Yes, that's right. Yes. It's sort of there's, – there's hints there that, that life has not been kind to Cassie. And also her relationship with her mother. Yes, absolutely. But how does Cassie therefore express herself? Well, she's become – because her difference, in a sense, is on the outside and she can't escape it, she's become very hard and very sarcastic and very kind of quick. And, and a very bit aggressive. Yes. She Let's has her moments, forget. yes, yes. She expresses herself differently. Um, yeah, but then that sort of counters with Simon, you know. And So how are these two? Yeah. Uh, Simon, who has is refusing to speak mm. um, with some sort of neurological condition, but it's not Asperger's. Mm. Cassie, who's can be violent, mm. how is their friendship formed? I think what's so beautiful about their friendship is that Cassie... Cassie really likes Simon because Simon doesn't judge her because he can't judge her. He doesn't really see 
the, the social sort of nuances that have led to her being bullied. Um, he's kind of scared of her because she has this reputation for being a bit aggressive and a bit of a live wire. Um, but he, he doesn't really have almost the social nuance to kind of act on that fear. He's but he's also not a threat. To... He's no. not judging her. No, he's not. And he he's wins her yeah. through silence. Yes. Well, through silence and um, Vegemite Vitaweets. Yes. <laughs> a very, very important component. Yes, absolutely. Vegemite yeah. Vitaweets. Yeah, yeah. If only, you know, Trump and Putin had Vegemite Vitaweets, right. we could solve the With problems of the world. <laughs> but again, what children see as being important and mm. how they negotiate and, and all of these sort of things, that's why play is yes, so essential. Absolutely. But if that then is interrupted mm. or damaged by the way parents mm. treat their children, mm. then there's a lot for these children to overcome before yeah. they can move forward. Yeah. So we've got that friendship there. We, the other question really is getting into that mindset of um, the child and mm. sustaining it. Um, I tried to go invisible. I tried to turn into air. I stood right where I was, right there on the spot, while it would, it all just kind of played out around me, and I felt heavy in my tummy when the noise came over, up over the top of me and broke over my head. I looked around at all the other kids' faces, and they were red and screaming. If I reached up and put my hands over my ears, I couldn't really hear anything anymore, like if someone had turned the volume down on the TV and all the lights and colours were kind of mixed up, but then I was dizzy and wanted to be sick, and at the same time I tried to be exactly still so that it would wash around all over me and maybe then I wouldn't be a part of it at all. Mm. Sustaining that, the style, sustaining mm. the mindset, mm. how were you able to do that? Um, with the help of a really talented editor. <laughs> um, I mean, it, Simon and I spent, you know, five years writing this book together, but it wasn't sort of every day that we would spend together um, because I needed to almost experience him for short periods of time and then go away and sort of go and be myself again. Um, he's very intense um, and it was intense to sit with him and have him talk to me about what's been going on with him. Um, but it was, I think, a, a, a refinement. So when I when I read back on the first drafts, his voice is different um, and then the more, the more time we'd spend together, his voice would have changed and then I'd have to go back and start again and go back to the front and then again it would have changed and I'd have to go back. So, you know, there are four or five drafts of this novel that is essentially... The story itself didn't change much, but it was about refining Simon and sort of trying to pick up those little bits where he slipped. The other yeah. interesting thing is seeing things through Simon's mm. eyes and he's mm. with his father in the car and they're yes. parked. Yes. There was a movement in the window and Dad went as still as a ta statue. A woman came to the window and closed it and even with the light on you could see her dressing gown which was pink and white with flowers hanging loose over a nightie. Dad took a little breath in from behind his teeth and I felt a wave come up through my feet and crash on the inside of my belly and the foam of it came up and I got caught and, and got caught in my throat. But if I coughed I'd give us away so I swallowed it down with the salt and the seaweed. There you are, he said, just under his breath. The lady was about Dad's age, and she stood at the window for just a second, and then she was gone. Mm. Now, we read that as adults and see one thing, Simon sees another, but yeah. seeing things through a child's eyes. Yeah. I mean, Simon is is very innocent in a sense that he he's observing these very adult interactions um, and, and pain and trauma. But he doesn't know what no, he doesn't he's know what actually witnessing. Yeah, we right. do yes. as the reader. Yes. That's the, the that's interesting... The yeah, that's sort of the challenge is, is almost interpreting Simon and looking, reading for his words, but also in a sense reading 
underneath them to see what he's actually communicating. Now, there's another... Uh, well, there's the trauma behind the scene that has mm. led to where Simon is, and we still don't necessarily know what has caused that. Mm. But then also there's a bit of an investigation that mm. uh, emerges because Simon actually forms a relationship with his teacher, Mrs mm. Hilcombe, mm -hmm. but she goes missing mm. and Simon feels he must find an answer. Now, I had echoes of the curious incident there, but it's not uh, mm. as such um, because Simon starts searching. Mm. Now, this is where it changes in dynamic mm. because towards the end of this novel, we have Simon searching, taking the initiative to go searching for Mrs Hilcombe. But who does he have the assistance of when uh, on this? Is it an adventure? Is it an investigation? A quest on a his quest? hero's journey. Um, well, he has the accompaniment of Superman, but he also has the accompaniment of Arnold, who is a man who lives who lived across the road from Cassie and who has died. Um, and Arnold is his connection to his imagining, I suppose, of the netherworld. And it's his mm. imagination mm. of what he thinks mm. has happened mm. to uh, yes. Mrs. Hill. Because he doesn't know. He thinks he knows, but but he's sort of done that very childlike thing of taking one piece of evidence and another piece of evidence, kind of jammed them together and, and made an assumption. Now, this is where we get towards the, the end of the novel. As you yeah. say, one piece of evidence here, one piece of evidence there. Mm. But the evidence now is coming out as a recollection of things mm. that have happened. Mm. But also then his association with Superman, his yes. association with Arnold. Yeah. And they're all uh, unreal <laughs> in a way. How would you describe what you're doing here? Because they are yeah. all informing his search. Yes, Yes, I think it's tricky. It's been described, the ending uh, is hard to talk about without giving away anything, of course, but it's been described as magical realism. Mm. But, but I don't know that it is. I, I'm actually not, I'm not convinced by that description um, because to my mind, Simon is describing things. There's almost like there's a, there's a real life kind of playing out and Simon is, is engaged with that. But then there's his way of communicating and describing things, which is completely different. His way of describing things. But also, mm. from a child's perspective, mm. things can be real. Yes. I mean, he believes them. And it's tricky, too, because towards the later stages, he's almost lost control of what's going on in his head. He's, um, he's been almost taken over by Superman and Arnold. And, and they're no longer acting fully to their to his intended purpose. Um, and so then they, you know, start to become aggressive and, and start to become a bit unsettling well, that's, because he's being un unsettled. He's unsettled himself, yeah, but then yeah. there's the reality of what he's going through at yes, the time in doing. his search, yes. which then informs what he's thinking and remembering. Mm -hmm. But, yes, that whole notion that a child's world isn't necessarily grounded in mm. fast reality mm. as we would know it. yes. Which is part of the delight of childhood. Yes. But it's, it's also really tricky to then be around <laughs> people who do that. I mean, I, I think about some of the people that I've worked with who are experiencing psychosis and they're sort of a classic example of describing something to you that is very real to them but you know that it cannot be real. And the sort of the, the um, 
task then is to work with them and communicate with them around these things and these factors that can't be. So I think what's important whenever you're doing that is to think about what are they actually telling me? What is the purpose of the psychosis? What is the communication here? That's taking place. Yeah, that's right. Um, The book is called We See the Stars, a line actually uh, taken from the fact that he's seeing a form of reality in his mother's eyes, but Mm -hmm. there's a trauma associated with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the Author is Kate Van Hooft, and it's an Alan and Unwin release. So, Kate, thank you very much for thank coming you. in today. Thank you. And I was speaking with Lisa Ireland about her book, The Art of Friendship by Pan Mac. And, and thank you, Lisa. And, Jan, that takes us out it's, for another week. 